I'm Dr. Jay Anders, and this is Tell Me Where It Hurts, where we discuss some of the big challenges in health IT and how we can solve them so clinicians can do what they do best, care for patients. I'd like to welcome everyone to another episode of Tell Me Where It Hurts. Um, today's episode is going to be kind of focusing on interoperability. It's been a big thing in the health IT news lately with uh, Mickey Trapathy and the Office of the National Coordinator coming out with standards and as they continue to go. And today's guest is an expert in that realm. And I, I'm going to date myself here just a little bit because I was back from started when the interoperability was a either a copied chart in the back of a van being transported across town or even better, the wonderful fax machines which still, by the way, is out there and being used all the time, which completely baffles me, but they are there. And I would always love to get the information from another provider. In, in the particular place I practiced, we had a very large, two actually very large group practices, which we shared patients all the time because certain specialties were covered by each of the group practices. But what was fun is when you get one of those faxes and you start looking at the pages, now, the pages were numbered by the fax machine, but there were also numbers on charts. So you get page one, two, five, eight, seven. And there they were. You had to do something with all of that. And that was about as interoperable or not as it could be. Um, so we've come a little bit down the road there. We've taken, starting with baby steps with certain things being transmitted, but hopefully down the road, that will now give providers a complete picture of what patients' records look like, which I think is the one thing, being a provider, we really, really need, and it will actually advance patient care and, and make healthcare a whole lot better than it is today. So today's guest is Dee Dee Davis. Uh, she has 30 years of experience in the healthcare industry with emphasis on conformance testing, implementation, development, management of information technology solutions, and healthcare workflow requirements. She is the VP of Informatics, Conformance, and Interoperability for Sequoia Project, which is a 501c3 non-for-profit organization based in Washington, D.C. Uh, Didi is considered a national subject matter expert in healthcare standards, interoperability, design, and strategy for all healthcare stakeholders, including consumers, hospitals, physician practices, public health, and health information exchange. Didi, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's a wonderful opportunity. I think it's going to be a great discussion, given the, the fact that we're coming out of fax machines. So you've had a 30-year history coming into where you are today and some of these wonderfully well-known names like Eclipses and Allscripts and Hymns and HL7. So give us a little background on what you've gone through and how you kind of wound up at the Sequoia Project. Well, that's a great, a great lead in. So I've been on a journey of serendipity, as I call it, for quite a while now, as you said, 30 years. So dating myself as well. Um, and I do remember all of uh, when, you know, health IT was just starting out in the healthcare industry in general. Um, so my journey has kind of evolved over the years. I started my healthcare path, I guess, at a university health system. So I worked for the University of Tennessee Medical Center for four years. I was in charge of budgeting. 
So I was a budget analyst um, early in my day, and I knew nothing about hospitals other than being born in one <laughs> back in the day. Um, I really didn't have any uh, background in hospital administration or any of that workflow that hospitals have. I had a wonderful boss that I'm happy to say I'm still very good friends with, and we get together regularly for, for lunches, who took a chance on me um, and literally helped, you know, helped me learn the healthcare field. Um, the first month or two that I was at the hospital, he actually had me working with each of the departments he was responsible for. He was one of the associate administrators. So I learned how food services worked, how the pharmacy worked, how the radiology uh, department worked and all of these ancillary service departments, as I would call it. So I started at a hospital. So I've been on the healthcare hospital provider side you know, within an inpatient care setting. It was a large university hospital. Hospitals don't pay a lot back in that day, especially. And and the University of Tennessee Medical Center was one of those that unless you actually, you know, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for advancement. Let's put it that way. And I was always a go-getter. So I started my vendor path at that point. So uh, worked at University of Tennessee Medical Center for four years in the early 90s. 1994, went to work for a dot-com startup company. That was my first entry into the vendor world. It was called Omnicell Technologies. Uh, was there for three years, kind of did project management in service nurses at two in the morning. That's where I learned the actual clinical workflows. Um, I was responsible for installing uh, systems in the Southeast region of the States. From there, I went to work for a boutique consulting company, actually using my computer science degree. So my degrees in computer science from the University of Tennessee um, from 1987. And I actually started coding HL7 interfaces for this boutique consulting company. So I went from uh, working and traveling 100% of the time to just coding interfaces, complete switch. Then that company was purchased by Eclipsis. So you mentioned Eclipsis a little while ago. They bought nine different companies over a two-year period. And we were the ninth company and we had our own integration technology that worked with, at that time, mainframe systems, mainframe green screen systems that you probably nobody even sees nowadays, but we were an integrator. We pulled the different disparate systems data together. And because Eclipsis had purchased nine different companies, they needed to integrate all these different platforms and architectures and databases. So I was put in charge of, at that point in time, a director of, of literally interoperability there as well, trying to make, they had pharmacy systems, ICU, uh, clinical you know, documentation systems, there were emergency room systems, there were all different types of inpatient, outpatient uh, systems that were provided. And I had to learn how each of those worked. And I really worked as a technical cell support uh, subject matter expert. And so I got to visit some of the who's who and learn from some of the best in the industry. Worked there for eight years. Um, and then HIMSS hired me to start the Interoperability Showcase. So if you've ever seen uh, that at the HIMSS conference, I, I put together the business model and and started the very first one in the U.S., the first one in Europe, and the first one in the Asia-Pacific region. Um, left there, started my own company to do a little bit more to, to try advance interoperability in my own state of Tennessee. I did that for six years, and Sequoia was one of the contractors I was working with at the time. Um, and they basically, I loved the job, um, but as a contractor, I was only working part-time. They needed somebody to do full-time work. So I went back from being an entrepreneur back into the world world of actually being an employee again. And I've been here at Sequoia now for 11 years. That's a good run. That is a really good run. 
So let's turn to the topic of interoperability because you've been involved with this since pretty much the very beginning because you dated yourself as well 30 years ago. I kind of know <laughs> that world. <clears throat> so um, it, this seems, it, it seems different this time. Uh, we have had different forays into that. And I remember meaningful use when it first came out, interoperable meaningful use was a CDA maybe, uh, but also fax machines, like we talked about, was a way of complying with interoperability to exchange records, which was, in my opinion, not very useful. Um, so why why does it seem different this time? Because it does. You know, that's a great question. I think actually with the Cures Act, so um, the 21st Century Cures Act, which was put out in 2016, included in it development of uh, an actual government endorsed policy framework to move interoperability to be more ubiquitous. So not to say that's not happening today. Care quality, uh, which was launched by uh, Sequoia in 2014, is the precursor of what is known today as TEFCA, the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement. So I think with ONC, actually, uh, the Office of the National Coordinator actually helping propagate and, and, and working with us as the recognized coordinating entity, I think all of a sudden there's renewed energy. Um, there's some renewed vigor and there's also the carrot and stick. So uh, we've already seen some regulation, the new HTI-1 regulation that was mentioned. It actually talks about uh, TEFCA. So I think all of a sudden there's a, a new um, world of, okay, I need to understand this. And by everyone talking about it, and discussing what the plans are, I think we're starting to see a lot more uh, of other types of purposes of use being discovered. So today treatment is primarily how data exchange for treatment purposes, but we want payers at the table. We want that administrative data. We also want public health data. We want all of these different types of data to start coalescing to actually help improve not only population health management, but also the patient care experience. And I think the focus on the patient having the power to have their own records has also helped move this a little bit more because patients are starting to ask for this as well. So those are, I think, some of the catalysts that are happening. Uh, ONC starting it, um, us helping, of course, evangelize it, and of course, the latest QHINs that were just designated. Um, the buzz is definitely there and a lot of people asking a lot of questions. So that's good. Do you think the lack of, of standards in the past played a role in how fast or slow this actually occurred? I mean, I'm thinking specifically now of fire um, and some of the other, you know, standard type interfaces now that people can actually start to exchange data that means something. Do you think that had any kind of impact on the speed of all of this? I definitely do. Um, unfortunately, standards take a while to be adopted. Um, I like to normally say, you mentioned baby steps. That's a, a term I use a lot. So um, the standards have been around, but it typically takes about 10 years to get those standards in production use in the real wild world. So I think that, you know, uh, the standards definitely have helped now that there are standards um, that are required as part of the frameworks, not only care quality, which has 36 networks connected today, exchanging over 600 million clinical documents every single month. That's 7 billion a year. So care quality showing that this scales by using those standards. And guess what? TEFCA and the recognized coordinating entity that we facilitate 
are helping propagate those same standards, the same plumbing that we've already proven is the on-ramp to launch this. Now you mentioned fire, what we're also looking at with the latest release of the QHIN technical framework, as we call it, um, actually shows that on-ramp of not just the, the existing plumbing that we already know is proven and scalable, but adding on the use cases for fire. And now that fire is more mature, there's some possibilities for that adoption. And I think a lot of that will start, in my prediction at least, um, with the patient apps. Um, fire is really more of a restful app type of environment. So today you uh, go to Amazon to order things, or you book an airline on some sort of airline portal. That is what we're thinking about for healthcare. You're going to log into a portal. You're going to use an app of some sort to talk back and forth to something. So I think that if we start looking at how to innovate and modernize, uh, public health is modernizing their whole infrastructure. All of these different things give us opportunity to put fire in its place to help uh, fill in some of those gaps and make it easier and reduce some of that burden for sure. So let's talk a little bit about the Sequoia project and how you you fit into all of this as you know the, these new QHENs that are starting to be certified now and up and running and Tefka. So what is Sequoia's role in this whole process? That's a great question. Again, we've been around about eleven years, and our our mission has not changed. It's to advance, convene, and advance interoperability for the public good. Um, that's the the best way to kind of summarize it. But if you think about it, security, trust, all of that has to happen for this to actually take root, as we call it. So I think in our role as a nonprofit, um, doing this now, not only facilitating one large network, but also a framework for multiple networks, we were a good fit. So ONC picked us as the recognized coordinating entity in 2019 because of our proven you know, process as well as all of our experience of actually operationalizing what they wanted to do with TEPCA. Um, so we became the recognized coordinating entity in 2019. Of course, then COVID hit. So we had a little bit of a stall, unfortunately. Um, and it took a couple of years before we actually put out the draft policy documents because, of course, everybody was focused on the pandemic and we didn't really have any focus from even government agencies. They were trying to help support how to get this you know, get us over the hump. But uh, 2022, some of these documents were released. Um, the application to become a QHIN was released late that year. Uh, folks started applying. Uh, their applications were vetted uh, by Sequoia, working in cooperation with ONC. And literally that ended in 2023, December 12th, we had the first five uh, designated QHINs, Qualified Health Information Networks. And if you think of a QHIN, so the one thing that TEFCA does above care quality is it's more secure. There's a higher bar um, to reach. For instance, organizations have to be high trust certified, things like that, so that these public utilities, these QHINs, are all going to be created equal. They're going to all have the same capabilities. So when you go to your cell phone you know, uh, carrier, you know the cell phone's going to work. There may be different packages and so forth, but these QHINs will evolve and hopefully start bringing on more of the public health folks, more of the payers. Uh, and luckily, because there are some CMS regs, things like that, I think some of this will coalesce with all the government agencies coming together. Uh, they did have a wonderful 
recorded session actually for the signing event December 12th, where all of the agencies got together and said, this is what this is going to help us with. So I definitely think that, you know, with Sequoia working in, you know, lock and step with ONC and, and having their support, I do think we're going to continue advancing at least the U.S. roadmap uh, going forward. So we talked a little bit about the carrot and the stick, which you know, nobody moves without a little bit of incentive one way or another. And the things that, you know, I've talked to several of my colleagues and some organizations that I've been involved with, there was a lot of resistance about being able to send that type of information. It was interesting to hear the the pushback that they were trying to give me when I would ask that question of them. And then there was all the, the patient privacy act part that you're talking about. Uh, patients not wanting their information flowing to places they don't want it to go, or certain aspects of the record that they don't want transmitted. There might be something of you know protected data in there. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how the QHINs are going to handle a lot of this? Um, I understand what the regulations are, and maybe you ought to expand on that a little bit too. But how are we going to get past some of this idliness, I'll call it, in the healthcare profession about actually sharing patient data that is meaningful. Another great point. Um, so, you know, in my mind, um, with the 21st century cures, so that's that's the legislation really that a lot of this is is being born from. So in that same regulation, you have things called information blocking. So ONC is also making sure that everybody does do that sharing. And if they don't do that sharing, they may be penalized with million dollar fines. Guess what? That makes all the hospitals and healthcare institutions that may not have been willing to share some of that data more willing to do so. So I think that that's one idea of how working with the federal government agencies, uh, which ONC is part of HHS, I think some of these are the barriers are starting to remove individual access, consenting, all of that is very necessary for the patient to be able to control their data to your point. And the framework for TEFCA allows jurisdictional laws to be accommodated. For instance, in the state of New York, you've got to opt in. Every patient has to opt in saying their data can be shared for every provider, every single encounter that you have, you have to say, yes, I can share this. And there are some states like where I live in Tennessee, no additional consent is required if you're treating a patient. HIPAA allows for that. So HIPAA regulations in different states may be accommodated different ways. So the framework has to be robust enough and flexible enough to handle not only the local jurisdictional items, but also still facilitate what the need is for the patient in general. So I think with things like information blocking and things like that, we're starting to actually see folks take real interest and looking at you know, reevaluating. They put these electronic records in. You mentioned meaningful use. That was the first regulations that helped get those electronic systems. Because if you think about it, you've lived through it too. Prior to 2010, there were less than 20, 25% of the hospitals that had an electronic health record. After 2010 and meaningful use is 2011, 2014, and 2015 additions happened, they incentivized all these providers and health systems to get those electronic records but they had to meet certain criteria and have them installed by a certain date and have certified vendors and all those things. I think the other thing that ONC is helping with is they're doing a standards advancement process. They're continually adding what data you have to exchange. So U.S. 
core for data, U.S. core data for interoperability, U.S. CDI. People have heard that acronym probably. Also is helping advance this. So U.S. CDI version one had 18 different data classes of data you needed to exchange. We're up to U.S. CDI version four, which has 42 different data classes. So I think that that's also something that uh, with their uh, experience now doing this for several years, uh, we're working with them to try to help advance that standards for what data is to be exchanged, but also making sure that not only the discrete data is exchanged, but those clinical narratives at, you know, your practicing position, those are very key golden nuggets for you to actually get data from. Uh, making sure to improve the labs so that they're coded, that all the lab codes, uh, LOINT codes are used so that when your machine, your computer digests that, it slices and dices through everything and provides you the information in, in, a, in a more uh, conformant way, more usable uh, way. So those are all things that are happening. Um, now that we have data exchange, the plumbing is flowing, but we got to keep improving that data for sure. So can you step us through how actually the information gets from an electronic medical record of an organization through the QHAN, you know, all, all this and how it gets back out again to the person that actually is going to be using it. Great question. So the QHAN, think of that as one gateway. And, and right now there are seven designated QHANs. Two more have been designated since December. And each of those will be connected to what are called participants or sub-participants. So thinking about here, I live in Tennessee. There's the East Tennessee Health Information Network, ETHEN. Um, they're a health information exchange that covers 25, 30 different counties in, in Eastern Tennessee. They are already connected to one of the designated QHINs already exchanging data on eHealth Exchange. They were part of that network since its inception and have continued to be. They will have the opportunity to opt in to also do the QHIN, what I would call TEFCA exchange of data. They will have flow down requirements. So there'll be policy requirements that flow down. For instance, there's a policy for individual access for the patients. How do you identity proof that patient to make sure that when you send data to the patient, that it really is the patient and not somebody spoofing them? Um, how do you account for caregivers being able to access that data? All those things are spelled out in what are called standard operating policies and procedures. So TEFCA has one data sharing agreement that are signed by the QHINs. That will eliminate the need for individual business associate agreements between all these different organizations that today are not scalable. If hospital A wants to talk to hospital B, prior to these frameworks in existence, they have to have a business associate agreement with each and every one of them. And every time the system changes, you may want to update that in some way. With the QHIN technical framework and the common agreement as part of TEFCA, not only will they have the rules of the road how to do it, but they'll have the policy requirements that they need to flow down to these organizations. So these hospitals or ambulatory centers, physician practices, their vendors will have to choose which QHIN they want to be part of. Now, Epic is one of those QHINs. They are called Epic Nexus, and they're offering that up to all their Epic customers to, to leverage and use. But the goal is to make sure that every vendor or system implementer, as I would call it, will have to pick a, and choose which of these networks they want to join. And now that we have seven, there's options. 
And there's even thought about how do you uh, connect? Maybe one network is going to do more public health focused items for exchange. Maybe another network is going to focus more on individual access. So those are kinds of things that each network will have the ability to create their own use cases and value added services. But the goal is that they'll all be interconnected so that when your vendor, who you already are part of, uh, for instance, Oracle, uh, Cerner, you know, prior to was Cerner, Oracle Health is part of Commonwealth. And Commonwealth is one of those designated uh, QHINs. So I think it's going to be uh, a point of everyone is now in the process of determining which of these QHINs are they going to be connected to. And then, of course, the camp, you know, hospitals, healthcare facilities will kind of be beholden to whatever choices their vendors do make at that point. Now, that may be different per system. They may, you know, there's there's talk about as we're evolving this, we released the first, you know, policy framework and it was pretty strict. Now folks are saying, well, I may want to connect to more than one QHIN. Can that be possible? So there are things that are happening where uh, we're starting to evolve and add in some of those additional capabilities as they're being identified. You know, one of the things that providers uh, that I talk to are is concerned about is once we are interoperable, and I, I'm concerned about this too, there could be a data, we call it, I call it a data tsunami of stuff coming in. If you, if I request, I'm an internist, a lot of my patients are, I've had for years and they've, they've had multiple medical problems. They've got charts in the old days, the paper about five inches thick. So there's a lot of information buried in them. Now it's all electronic. So when I call for Mrs. Smith's chart somewhere that she has been, the providers I'm talking to are worried about, okay, now I've got it. Now, what do I, how can I use it once I get it? Um, are you hearing that at all in, in this conversation about interoperability? Absolutely. In fact, Sequoia um, had been hearing about this from our board um, helps prioritize the work that we, we do. So yes, we've been hearing this and I call that data quality and usability um, because now that you're getting a lot more data, you're going to get duplicates of that data. How do I reduce the burden on my clinicians? I don't want them to have to wade through all these duplicates and, and things like that. So um, we, we, you know, we started focusing on data usability as an actual priority item. Uh, we released guidance on that in December of 2022. Um, and we're working on a version two implementation guidance, which will take it that much further. And we're hoping to bring in industry pain points. We have a parking lot of ones from the first cycle that we didn't address that we're now looking at addressing in the version two. But I do believe that this will continue improving in those baby steps. It's not going to happen overnight, but it does also take all of us doing this together. So I do challenge everyone to say, all of us have a part to play. And these electronic records that may have been implemented seven, eight, 10 years ago with meaningful use dollars, we need to reevaluate. Maybe when you put them in, you didn't put those LOIC codes on the labs because at that time it wasn't required. But your vendor product has the ability to do that. Make sure that you reevaluate continual improvements, thinking about usability in all projects, making sure to keep advancing that. So I think that this is something that we all need to educate each other on, but also help support each other uh, to get through the, 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 the process. Because I know there's limited resources, not only on the healthcare facility side, but also on the vendor side. 
Yeah, the last thing I think I would like to receive as a provider is an electronic version of a fax machine, basically Absolutely. page after page after page of stuff that I have to go plowing through. So you mentioned a little bit of the challenges. That's one of them. Are there other challenges you see of this going forward? Yeah, I do see that we continually um, have to think about that new innovation. So a lot of folks, for instance, right now, the, the TEFCA framework allows for multiple purposes of use. So there's six overarching ones like payment, operations, treatment, public health. Now there are different, different I guess, granular levels of operations. Um, so there's some of that that's evolving, but in my mind, research and some of these other purposes are folks, folks are actually starting to need and want. And I think we need to start being a little bit more thoughtful in let's get everything moving, at least for these, and then start thinking about those secondary uses. But I think, you know, with what our president is working on with the cancer moonshot work and so forth, there's so many opportunities that we can continue advancing and making health IT systems work smarter rather than harder. And I think if we continually evolve this so that those LOINT codes are added to labs, that way your machine can digest that and give you trending reports. Maybe you need to trend their A1Cs or something to that effect. All of this is going to continue working better and better and better, but we need to make sure that we allow those computer systems to, to harness the power of the data um, by being able to slice and dice through it a little bit better so that you as a clinician don't have to do that yourself. And boy, that's a topic near and dear to my heart. Let the computer do what a computer does well and let the providers practice and yeah. At, yeah. The, at the limit of their license. Is there anything else you think our listeners would would want to know about what you do and how you do it? Well, I, I talking about that data usability. I'll I'll put a plug shameless, but I will put it out there. Um, we have uh, we did create that version one guidance for data usability. We published it in December 2022, but we don't want it just to collect dust on a shelf. We don't want to have this guidance sitting there with nobody implementing it. So we launched in July of last year something called the data usability taking root movement. So taking root movement as uh, as the the shortened version of that. Um, I'm happy to report we have over 60 organizations that are backing us now. Um, the uh, American Health Information and Management Association, AHIMA, is actually co-sponsoring this with us. Um, we had our first summit in September of last year where we identified with these implementers, with these supporters that are signing up to be behind this whole movement, what do we need to help you be successful? Um, so they identified things like testing tools. We need to know how well we perform with our own clinical data to conform against this new guidance. Um, we're happy to say by first quarter of this year, we'll be launching that testing tool thanks to uh, support with AHIMA. We also need to support being able to report metrics. We want to show progress of how this is being deployed. So we've created our first scorecard that was just launched in January and given to the community of practice, as we call it. So we're building this community of practice to help improve that data usability and quality. So I quality is in there. Quality is kind of assumed because without good quality data, you're not going to have it usable. So the two go hand in hand. But that's something we're really focused on. And it's not a one and done. Our board of directors prioritize this as something we're going to work on at least for the next decade. So I think that's something that I would encourage you to, to learn more about. Um, sequoiaproject.org. You go to the sequoiaproject.org website. 
under the uh, different initiatives. There's one out there called Data Usability Taking Root. Um, everyone can be a supporter. There is no cost to be a supporter. Um, it's just helping you get some of the information to help you be successful in re-looking at how can I improve some of these usability uh, topics. For instance, provenance, to trust data. You as a clinician want to know where it came from and who created it and what date and time it was created on. Not every document that is being exchanged today has that data on it. So little things like that that are baby steps. If everybody just started making sure the data they send identifies that, it's going to take that one baby step to make the data more trustworthy and usable. So we, we, we encourage everyone to look at that. Think about the guidance. It's only 42 pages. I know it's 42 pages, but the guidance itself, if you look at the conformance requirements, are probably two or three pages worth of, of data itself. So thinking about that at the use case level and see which ones of these things are pain points that your facility uh, has today. And think about that working with your vendor to see how you can actually implement it. Working with some of the vendor implementers I've been talking to today, they're saying, well, our systems are capable of doing this. We've just not configured it in every one of our customer sites to do it yet. So we need to start having customers asking their vendors for it and vendors making the capabilities you know, available right away and working with their implementation teams to actually facilitate the deployments. But we encourage everyone to think about that and hopefully join our movement, help us uh, be successful. I'm grateful for my two co-chairs. I do have uh, Dr. Bill Gregg from HCA Healthcare and Dr. Adam Davis, uh, who is a practicing pediatrician from Sutter Health, helping guide this. So it is real clinical input, um, and we want to help everyone get there in those baby steps as we need. So that's a great segue into a question I ask all of the guests of, of our program is, if you had a magic wand and could wave it and change one thing in healthcare IT, what would it be? You know, one thing. <laughs> I want lots of things changed. It's a hard question. One thing. That is a hard question. One thing. Uh, in my mind, uh, you know, really thinking, thinking of this as not a one and done, thinking about how can I make a difference and, and doing that as early as possible. So what can we change? Helping everybody understand how they're empowered to make a difference. Every one of us can make a difference. Um, and I think with, you know, meaningful use, a lot of things got slammed in, but they may not have gotten slammed in and optimized the best way possible. A lot of people can, you know, they, they, they took and operationalized a paper workflow in a computer, but they didn't think about how to optimize some of those workflows. So one thing I would, would, would change is helping do some of that optimization up front so that when you had this health IT system, it was more usable out of the gate. But uh, hindsight's always twenty twenty, and you know that's what we're trying to make that difference now. So, if someone wants to get more information, you mentioned the website. Um, how would they get a hold of you? Interop matters at sequoiaproject.org. That's a general email. We do have all of these. The data usability work group is just one work group under that. We have a privacy and consent work group. We have a patient engagement work group. We have a public health work group. So if you'd like to learn more about what Sequoia is doing and how you can get engaged with some of these things, join the data usability work group. It's open to everyone. The sequoiaproject.org website, Interop Matters 
at sequoiaproject.org email, or feel free to, to send, you know, anything to our admin account. Um, the main thing is just, you know, ask questions. There are no silly questions. We do have monthly informational calls. So the whole TEFCA work. We have informational calls every month where you can join. These are free to join. You can ask questions. And if we don't answer them on that call, we carry them forward to the next. So engage there. And of course, visit with us at HIMSS. Um, we'll be at the HIMSS conference uh, in March in Orlando. And, um, you know, a big, you know, a big group of our, our, our employees will be there uh, helping, you know, support the different uh, discussions and presentations and, and things like that. If you can't attend him, uh, definitely, you know, join one of our work groups and follow some of that work along the way. We try to make sure all of that's publicly posted. Didi, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Great. So likewise to you. It's great to meet you. And I look forward to seeing you at Hems too. Thank you so much. That's all for today. Thanks for listening to Tell Me Where It Hurts. Tune in to Healthcare Now Radio and Podcast Network each month for the latest episode. To learn more about Medicomp Systems, visit our website at www.medicomp.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at MedicompSys or myself at MedicompDoc, or check out the show notes for links. See you next time.